Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Check it out. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Bill Roden on Sports. This is, of course, Jamal Murphy. And once again, we have the great Bill Roden coming to us from a remote location. Uh, you're somewhere where this time? Last time we talked, you were in Texas. I'm, in, uh, I'm somewhere in Wyoming. I'm uh, about maybe about a half hour away from Cheyenne, Wyoming, on Route 80 East. Okay. Get back okay. to New York. So a little, it sounds a little safer than Texas. I, I, I think I would feel a little more safe in Wyoming for whatever reason. I've never been, but I'm just assuming. You know, Texas is just a scary state to me. I don't know why. Maybe I shouldn't be so scared. But um, yeah, well, you know, you know why? <laughs> yeah, prob- <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably do. I probably do, especially especially in these days and times. But um, okay, so you, you're in Wyoming. That's not that's not too close to New York. So it sounds like you got a little bit of driving to do. Driving through, but it's very gorgeous. You know, just really beautiful mountains, snow, snow capped mountains, and just wide open spaces. They can easily people vote for Trump. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I would, I would assume so. I think I saw the uh, the electoral map. It was definitely a red state. Um, but okay, so in Wyoming now, and you're coming from. I know you. I know you visited uh, Sundance, and that's Utah. Uh, right. What were you doing out there? I was at the uh, Sundance Film Festival. You know, uh, a friend of the show, um, filmmaker, man, I'm just blanking, uh, filmmaker uh, Stanley Nelson. Right. Was, was previewing uh, a great film, uh, We Rise, about historically black colleges and universities. Right. So I wanted to come out and talk to him because I'm going to be writing a piece for ESPN's The Undefeated next, uh, I think next Wednesday. So I wanted to go out there and, and talk to Stanley and see the film. It was very powerful. Right. And, uh, yeah. So, and I've never been to Sundance. It was really glad I went. It's really, really just a nice, if you love, if you love skiing and you love movies mm-hmm. and all that, and it's just a great combination. Wow. Yeah, that's good. I that's, love skiing. That's definitely, definitely good stuff, Sundance. No, I've, I've never been, and that's, that's one of the places I definitely want to, want to get to sometime soon um you mentioned your, your undefeated piece coming up but you also wrote a piece uh that came out a couple of days ago um that that was very interesting and it covered a conference that took place at san jose state um i believe it was the 23rd uh what was that about so you were out apparently so you were out at san jose state in california um covering that conference what was that all about well you know it was uh the um Dr. Harry Edwards, who's the preeminent sociologist who who uh, really got his name uh, talking about the interface of sports and racism and social change, is now starting a an institute anchored at San Jose State, San Jose State. And Tuesday marked the uh, they were opening it up. They were. Uh, um, uh, it, it, it was sort of the inauguration, inaugural event right. for the Institute. And I was there. The Undefeated was covering it. So I was there covering for the Undefeated along with Maya Jones and the executive editor of the Undefeated, Kevin Merida, was there. And um, it was really, and I think the theme of the conference was words to action. Right. The words to action. How to you know, how to convert words to action. So it was um, it lasted half a day. It wasn't all day, but it it lasted from about 8.30 to about 4. And um, a lot of very fascinating ideas came up. Again, I'm not sure we, the panel, got to action yet. 
Right. But, yeah, you got you know, but, uh, give, give it time. Give it time for sure. It's actually the Institute for the Study of Sport, Society, and Social Change at, at San Jose State University. It was a fascinating panel. You had the great Jim Brown, who's been in the news lately. You had Chris Weber, a uh, former Fab Five yeah. member. You had Takeo Sp- uh, Spikes from a former Cincinnati Bengal linebacker. Anquan Bolden from the Arizona Cardinals. And the great Tommy Smith. And it was narrated by uh, Harry Edwards, another another great. Right. So that's a fascinating uh, panel right there. Yeah. Yeah, and um, a lot of interesting things were said. I, I, I shared a lot of the clips for you and I thought it would be interesting for our for our uh, listeners to listen to some of the things that were said because there were a lot of very interesting ideas that were shared. Of course um, I think that uh, one of the very first questions uh, that were asked went to Jim Brown. Of course. And of course everybody, you know, Jim you know, was one of the first First people to um, to uh, after the election to um, meet with President then President elect Donald Trump and right. he took a lot of grief for it and that was the first question of the afternoon of the morning yeah which Why which, did, <laughs> which it which it had to be I mean like you mentioned he met with he met with Trump. Uh, he received a lot of grief for it, and he's not the only one. Of course, we heard about Steve Harvey, uh, Kanye West. It's almost like any any black uh, famous person that dares meet with Trump is gonna is gonna hear it uh, from from the, the black masses. So, uh, whoever the, whoever that is, whoever the black masses, <laughs> whoever the uh, who, well, they, they definitely show up on on Twitter or, or as they call it, black Twitter. But um, yeah, so obviously Jim Brown was. Uh, was asked a question that everybody wanted to wanted to know, and that is, why did you meet with Trump? And uh, this is what he said. First question that I have, Jim, goes to you. Um, there have been a lot of conversation, of course, about the fact that you that you sat down with uh, the president. Uh, and I, as usual, we've been talking for 50 years, and nothing will stop us from talking. And when you called me, um, you made three points that I think are critically important. First, that he's the president. Nothing will change that. Secondly, our kids are being shot and killed, even in the president's hometown of Chicago. Grandmoms, babies, toddlers, young men, and so forth. Uh, and if somebody stands up and says, I'm going to do everything I can to help resolve that, uh, as you put it, I don't care if it's a Martian in the White House, I'm going in. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, the other point you made, have we really gotten to the place where we're afraid to even sit down and talk to each other? Uh, we, have we gotten to the place where we do not even want to sit across the table from each other? All of which are arguable points. Uh, but the question I have for you is, what are the deliverables? What is it that you expect to come out of this uh, situation, uh, especially given the price that you paid in the eyes of some uh, for even going in in the first place? Thank you uh, for that introduction. I'm an American citizen. I voted for Hillary Clinton, and we lost. I looked to the seat of power, which is the President of the United States. Donald Trump won that seat. Therefore, a lot of people went home and sat down and started complaining and voicing their opinions on him. I went back to the people that I had ready to be able to do certain things that were positive for our young people across this country and told them that I would reach out to the president. But his people reached out to me and they liked my program, the American program. And we had been sitting there with young people across the country ready to do the job of violence intervention, deal with education and deal with jobs. So consequently, it is not what you talk about. It is what you can put into order and to take action in making things better for those who can make them better for themselves. So I'm here as a person that's donating my time to 
positive change in this country and to call attention to those people down there that I've not heard too many people talk about tonight. All right. So, um, you know, it's kind of what you would expect him to say. He, w- he was not apologetic at all, of course. Right now, I mean, he said that um, I voted for Hillary, but when my team lost, <laughs> you know, I've, you know, he's got his I There I Can't Foundation, and it needs funding. Right. And, uh, he, you know, he wanted to get funding for it. So I thought, you know, I mean, and the thing about Jeff Brown, that number one, he didn't give a damn about what anybody thinks. Right. <laughs> you know, he didn't really care. Um, but again, I, and I respect him for answering the question and saying, hey, this is who I am, and this is, uh, you know, this is what I uh you know, this is why I stood for. I mean, this is why I did it. I, I respect him for that, even though Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who sat right next to him, now Kareem was also a Hillary supporter, but he's been an outspoken critic, of, continues to be an outspoken critic of Trump. And I think from Kareem's perspective, although he respects Jim and all that, he, he said, well, I just couldn't do that. I mean, you know. Right. Um, and, and I, you know, it's hard. everybody has a lot, you know, most people have a lot of respect for Jim Brown. Uh, he's done a lot for the cause, no question about it. Um, and even this answer, it's hard to, it's hard to really argue with what he said. He's he, he basically saying that, you know, I want to make change. I'm serious about it. I don't care who's in there. I'm going to talk to them. The only thing that, that struck me upon, you know, hearing that he first met with Trump and that wasn't really asked of him uh, at the conference or addressed was really, really the thing. That, the only thing that really bothered me that he met Trump is when he came out afterwards, basically calling him a great guy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I love, I love him. I fell in love with him. <laughs> right. So, I mean, maybe you know, maybe he's trying to he's trying to win points with Trump too. And and the the thing that comes across is the major thing is he's funding my organization. So that makes me kind of get it. You know, I mean, I think you know everybody's got a price, right. and if if you if you're trying to get something done, you have to make a decision. Right. And again, as you said, um, you know, Jim does have some currency. I mean, right. he has done you know for his work with gangs and things like that. I mean, he he has maybe some more credibility than a lot of clowns who just met with just met with Trump and said, hey. Like, we're hoes, okay? We're being hoes, <laughs> you know, and, and opportunities. So um, I, I don't know if I'd give him a pass, but again, he's not asking for anybody to give right. a pass. Right, he's, he's not asking for a pass, and, and you're right. I mean, like you said, it's a, it's a free country. He has his own mind. He always has, and uh, he's doing what he feels is right. And the, and the thing is, it's, you know, I said before, he's uh, Trump is – basically telling him that he'll he's willing to fund his organization but his organization does a lot of good and that's 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 a key part of it also he's he's not we you know he's proven to do good things in the black community so if it works out like that great you know i, I don't have any I don't, you know overall if if he if if trump actually follows through and and helps jim brown do, uh achieve what he wants to achieve all in all you know the people who the people who had something to say about Jim Brown might have to reverse their course also. Yeah, and I think that's the proof of the pie will be in the pudding. Is, um, you know, will he follow through? Um, you know, will he follow through? And that's to be continued. <laughs> sure. We shall see. It sure is. That's, that's definitely to be continued. So, obviously, a whole bunch of topics were were uh, discussed in, in this conference, and one of the big ones was uh, – what what athletes need to do moving forward to make a change in society. And one of the interesting uh, comments uh, that Kareem had, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was on the panel, is, you know, he was asked what he thought was the next step for athletes, and, and he had an interesting take or comment on where he thought things needed to go, and it dealt with athletes putting their resources or money together in the future and, and making change that way. And this is what he had to say. Uh, I, I'd like to uh, add to what uh, Jim is saying about uh, people coming together. So many uh, of 
the athletes that are playing today that are from uh, inner cities, uh, a lot of black athletes, a lot of guys from the inner city that or, or places where poverty has made its imprint on them. We all have a, a common history. And uh, hopefully we will get to a point where some of these guys that are making all this, one of, you know, guys making 30 and $40 million uh, will get together and start trying to do uh, economic projects. I would love to see uh, a couple of guys get together and buy the Fairmont Hotel. <laughs> and be able, you know, when people in the black community want to learn uh, about uh, event planning and uh, catering and all that, they can go to this hotel and get a job. They can't do that. Uh, you know, too many people, minority people do not have those types of assets that are uh, open to their communities. So when uh, athletes of color get together and come together economically to do something meaningful, it, it opens doors up that uh, all everybody from their communities can take advantage of. And that's how we make the, the, the steps into the middle class. So we gotta start thinking like that. Uh, too many uh, uh, people of, of color and minorities don't understand the, uh, the strength that they get by banding together. So if I, if, all of these guys, four guys that make $30 million a year getting together to do an economic project, they're going to get something done. And uh, it's going to have an impact. And they got to start thinking like that. Uh, I think people who have the uh, opportunity to influence them have to start talking to them about that. Uh, someone like Jay-Z could buy a whole city block in Brooklyn and uh, start teaching and, and make it possible for uh, the young men in that neighborhood to learn uh, building skills. They could be electricians and uh, uh, plumbing and uh, people who, who uh, carpentry, finish carpentry and stuff, all the stuff that are building skills, they could learn that if someone uh, with the money can uh, put that in place. And then these young men can go out and, and earn a living for the rest of their lives and take care of their families. But uh, too many of our young people aren't thinking in, in those terms. Strategically. And, uh, you know, the strategic use of uh, capital and uh, financial resources really has to be part of this, and we have to start thinking about that. So that's what I want to add to that. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, I thought that was fascinating. And again, it's not, it's nothing new. Right. But it, 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 it is something that Kareem has been talking about a lot, and it's just so much common sense. I mean, right. That, that was one of the overarching themes of the afternoon, too, was unity, right. teamwork. How can we work together? And, you know, it just seems so simple that you've got all these black folks making money and doing things. Why can't we just, you know, get together? I know it's a simple, it's a simple question with a very complicated answer. How difficult would it be to pull resources to do things? And maybe we do have a lot more of that than we uh, that you know than we think. Um, yeah, no, no question about it. And it's something you always hear from other people. You always hear other people with that suggestion. But it was interesting coming from a former athlete, a star athlete who made a lot of money in his day, basically saying, you know, if two or three of these guys put their thirty million dollar a year together, a lot could be accomplished. And, you know, it definitely makes complete common sense. So we shall see. That's another we shall see. Hopefully that does that does happen, but we've yet to see it, at least publicly. If you look back at our history, I mean, when are the times when there was a lot of unity? I mean, you know, you go back to the civil rights marches, but even there, it's not like, you know, everybody was marching, you know. Right. You know, it seems like that. Everybody today will tell you, oh, yeah, I was there. But every, you know, everybody was not marching. Everybody was not demonstrating. Yeah, no, so no question. I think the idea of everybody doing something together is a pipe dream. I mean, you, you work with people who you work with. You work with like-minded people, and you get stuff done. 
but you don't wait for everybody to do it. Right, and, and, and Kareem's example is just two people. I mean, already we've seen, I don't know what they're doing monetarily, but already, and this was mentioned at the conference a few times, but uh, Chris Paul, Melo, uh, LeBron, Dwayne Wade, they got together and they worked together on that on the ESPY speech. Uh, maybe they can put some money together and, and do some do a lot with, with that with those four guys. You can do a lot <laughs> with that money, but I don't want you know I don't want to be in their pockets or anything. But you know, Kareem had a good point. Right. Yeah, and, and you can't spend other people's money. You but I think if if you're moved by the spirit, then you just work together and. And you'll do things. Again, it may not be with the entire team or the entire league. It just may be two or three people. Right. But if, if you're doing something for the advancement of African Americans and the survival and prosperity to make sure that there's, you know, we have access to better education, uh, access to um, economic economic clout, to create, you know, to create jobs and, you know, just to continue – work that's been done over the past 400 years. I mean, that's essentially all we're talking about. What will each of us do to do what our parents and their parents and their parents have done to get us to this point? And it does, it's always taken some degree of help because, you know, you can't do this stuff by yourself. Right. Definitely no question about that. Um, another topic that was discussed at, at the conference, and, and this is this is a natural uh, topic and it's being it's being discussed more and more every every year and a lot this year was was intercollegiate athletics and the NCAA and players getting paid and all that stuff and uh, Weber at one point Chris Weber and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had an interesting uh, had two interesting comments about what they saw as the NCAA hypocrisy and this is what they had to say. I definitely agree with Brown about that because, uh, unfortunately, I've, I've uh, had a lot of my peers be in that situation. But I have a friend that made a bunch of money in the tech, and he lost everything, and we don't pity that like an athlete, you, you know. Uh, I think where you're going to recruit these kids, the most desolate places of America where there's no hope, and you go in and you tell the mother, I'll take care of your son for four years on a four-year scholarship. It's not a four-year scholarship. It's a one-year scholarship. What is the value of education? I have friends that have graduated at the highest of class from the best universities and say they can't find a job. What is, what is the balance of education? I mean, at the same time, it's still an institution. It's still a business. So let's separate business, education, all of these things, because there are kids that I went to school with that still have problems walking, bodies hurting from playing two years in college and don't have insurance from the years they played in college. There are guys that are married that are in college that can't afford to pay their kids. There are guys that can't afford to eat. It's, it, we're acting like it's a guarantee because you go get this big guy from Mississippi or California, Florida, because he can run fast as if it's a guarantee. It, it, it's really not a guarantee, but the coaches are putting it as if you're going to be guaranteed, as if this is going to happen. And so there needs to be a re-education for the parents, for also for these kids as well. But, you know, I think if we're all honest, we have to look at what is the value of an education? What is the value of education at this school? When you're going to this school for communications, and you don't even want to be in communication, but the coach recruited you and told you it's a better team there. So I thought, one of the funny things, I've been recruited since 12 years old. A lot of stuff was said about me. I took this, I took that. At 12 years old, I've never had a responsibility as an adult. You know what grooming a child is like? You know, they do that for universities. They groom a kid. Start calling and tweeting them at 13 years old. Yeah. So what, I mean, I mean this is a business. And so yeah. don't leave the kid and, and, and the mother and those and the father and those are just hoping for the American dream because that's being pushed to them. You can do anything, you can do anything and not saying, you know, after this, we're going to need a financial advisor. No, they give you up to the agent to take care of everybody that they're getting a kickback from. You know, it's not, it's not a simple. So, 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 some people need also to, to understand that they're being exploited. People don't understand that. They, these kids don't understand that they're being exploited. They think, I got an ex uh, a chance to go play for the Wolverines. Oh my goodness. And, you know, they've watched them since they were kids and they're, they're brought into it. And they act like, uh, you know, it's like one of those movies 
from the 1930s, you know, where the college team, you know, they go out and they, they celebrate at the local malt shop. And, <laughs> and, the, and the quarterback and the cheerleaders are getting on and all, you know, that, that doesn't happen. This is business. Uh, these colleges are making so much money. And, uh, you know, they, they exploit these guys. They have a, an insurance policy. The MC2A has an insurance policy that you're supposed to be able to use if, if you get hurt. And, but the only way that you can get paid is if you can't ever compete again. So if you're injured to the point where uh, you can get up and walk, but you, you can't play your sport, you don't get anything. And the, and the university uh, rescinds your scholarship. So what do you get out of it? Nothing. And you end up back in your neighborhood, uh, crippled for life and no possibilities. So uh, somebody needs to get on on the NC2A's ass about uh, educating <laughs> Why do they have these policies in place? Why don't you let these guys finish their education and, and get something, uh, you know, some of them come out crippled, uh, or as you mentioned, with the concussions. It's, it's, uh, it's a bad deal. That was that was really very, very, very insightful on both of their parts. I mean, you know, given what you know, Chris Weber went through, uh, kind of put himself through at Michigan, you know, accepting money and you know, uh, and um, he paid the price for it. They took down his, they took down his jersey. They erased his name for the record book. Right. They gave, they gave some money back. But they didn't give nearly the millions back that they made off of them. So you right. can hear when Weber talking. This was something that was very important to him. Right. It was. It was definitely from the heart. There were, you know, the whole thing about what really stuck out to me was when he was talking about the. It was a small thing, sort of, but the scholarship. And he said, he said, you know, they tell you they give you these four-year scholarships. It's really just one year, and that that's absolutely true. And we've seen that recently like when you, you talk about a Calipari or you know after the after that one year nothing's guaranteed it's guaranteed for that first year you don't play well you don't, you might not you might not have the scholarship for the second year um not might not you probably won't have it for the second year so and they, they de yeah so I mean a lot of all that stuff was very enlightening really yeah I think for the audience we take for granted those of us who worked in sports that everybody really takes this deep dive into the issues, but the reality is that most people don't. I mean, you know, they see the games, they watch the games, they cheer for blue or orange, and that's it. But to really dive into the um, anesthesia and the cracks of the industry, a lot of people say, wow, I had no idea that this stuff was, was going on. You know, you hear people talk about, hey, I don't know if we've got that clip, but Kareem was talking about the exploitation and right. our kids just don't even realize they're being exploited. Right. Because I want to play for Michigan. I want to play. Oh my God, I just want to play. And you have no idea that you're being used. Right. Right. And, and even, and then Weber even addressing the fact that, you know, these, these schools were calling him since he was 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. You know, the average fan doesn't realize that either. I mean, it's, 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 it is pretty crazy. And that's why this, yeah, these yeah, these type of conferences need to go on, uh, need to happen more often, just to, you know, show enlightenment. And, and you know, and this, you know, part of the reason we're doing this podcast is to let more people listen in because not everybody got a chance to check it out. I know they they live streamed it. Uh, I heard it. I heard the audio of it, but there was a lot of good stuff during this uh, during the conference. Um, yeah, but, really fascinating yeah. stuff. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Jamal. Go ahead. Yeah. No. No. And um. And you being there, I mean, you you actually uh, got a chance to speak to a, f a couple of people after the conference uh, on some of the same, but some but some other issues as well. Uh, you talk, you talk, you had you got a chance to talk to Brown again after the conference. Uh, what was that like? <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy speaking with Jim, but we always have these little, you know, back and forth, and I've gotten got to the point. With him, and it took about you know 50 years where I could actually you know have little debates with him. Um, you know, as, as almost as you know, he's he's the athlete, activist, intellectual. I'm the journalist. Right. And it was interesting to sit back and, and speak with him. We spoke for maybe about 
almost 45 minutes. And he, he got more into depth about about uh, Trump. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, you know, and, and why? Because my, my point to him was, you know, neither of us as black men want to be the black men that white racists point to when they try to validate their racism. Well, wait a minute. I'm not racist. I'm working with Bill. Right. Uh, what do you mean I'm racist? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm funding Jim's program. Jim? And so when you take that money, that's part of your job is to be trying out on stage. You know, and say, well, yeah, you know, yeah, right. You know, you good guy as far as I can see. Right, and that and that was yeah, and that was the the worry or the fear of people who who did lash out at Jim Brown. They they, they thought that Trump was actually using him and, and succeeded in using him as a tool. As we talked about later, we'll see about that. We'll see what happens in the end. But here's some of the uh, here's some some of the conversation that you had with Brown uh, after the conference. And again, you 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 pressed him again on why he met with Trump, and this is this is what he said. I didn't vote for President Trump. I voted for Hillary. But as soon as Hillary lost, I started looking at how to deal with this president, the new president. And so while other people were sitting on their bus complaining, I was putting together a two pages so that if I had the opportunity to talk to these people, that I could solicit them buy into my concept. And so they haven't asked me to buy into any concept. Mm -hmm. They know that I voted for Hillary, but they're willing to work with me because I brought something to them that made sense. So if you look at the president and you look at the black community, we need jobs badly. We need to continue education badly. We need to eradicate the violence badly. And that doesn't have a lot to do with Trump. Right. It has a lot to do with all of us. But if he's willing to support that and to finance that, then that's what I want him to do. I'm not stupid enough to say that everything that he says I agree with, but there are very few people right. that I find that way. Right. And what I say in our democracy is that we have a right to our opinions. We have freedom of speech. And maybe most of all, we have the freedom to vote. So those of us who supported Hillary didn't do our job. That's right. That's right. And Mr. Trump won. And so when you talk about me being the judge of what degree of white people are racist and which degree is not racist, I'm going to tell you, I'm not really a student that. I know people that have been good to me, and I know people that have furthered my goals. I don't always know their politics, what they do behind closed doors. So I speak for myself. Uh, I can stand any kind of criticism because I'm 80, going 81 years old, and I'm interested in helping people, helping my family, helping my kids, and leaving here with some dignity and to be my own man. So looking at me and trying to talk about who I deal with, we all can go back to slavery and become victims of something that we're justifiable, justifiable so, because slavery was an atrocity. But do we move forward from that? And we did that, and we still haven't got full equality. So any black man in America that's looking at me talking about why would I deal with Trump, I'm saying, why do you deal with white people, period? Because they've never apologized for slavery. And slavery is the worst time that I can think of for the humiliation of other human, one human being to another human being. Yeah, so I mean, basically basically the same thing. I think he, he was a little more fiery, uh, Oh, one on one, he's probably just tired of being asked the question. But you know, he, he, you know, he said, he said, you know, I am who I am. I'm going to make my own decision, basically. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if that was in the clip, but you know, when he said about when I asked about uh, white people, he said, "Well, who are your white people?" 
Right. Yeah. That that wasn't in the clip. That that was that was pre. That was before his answer. But no. Yeah. That. I mean, yeah. he was a little. You know, he was a little on edge as he should be. I mean, he knows. I mean, he tried to play it off in terms of, you know, nothing bothers me. People can't talk about. You know. But obviously, he's heard the criticism, and nobody. Yo. I'm sure nobody wants to be criticized, especially by their own by their own people, you know, and questioned, <laughs> and, you know, as as if you were played. Nobody. Nobody would like that. Right, and especially him, but, you know, you make these decisions. And, you know, you you pay the price for it. And, you know, he says nobody, I, I, didn't, I don't care if people think, but I think everybody cares to some extent what people think, particularly if black people calling you a coon, right. <laughs> you know, and, right. and that kind of stuff. But I think these are the questions, Jamal, that, again, when I start talking about locker room talk, Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the kind of locker room conversations, blunt locker room conversations among teammates. Right. On the same team, and we're trying to win games. We're trying to win the championship. Right. And right. we really have to. I got to know that I can trust you, or I just got to know where you're coming from. And that may mean asking you some really blunt questions, and you give me some very blunt answers, and then we decide, hey, listen, we we agree to disagree, we move on, or you know what. I really hadn't thought about that, um, you know, and, and you have a deeper respect for people on your team. But to the extent that black folks are in this one huge locker room, I think that it's time that we really have to ask these questions. Well, um, why did you meet with Trump? And, and when he turned it around on me and I was, it caught me off guard. But he said, who are your white people? And so my, you know, my first was, I don't have any white friends, you know. <laughs> And, but the point is, is that, well, I'm not asking you about your white friend. I'm saying, who are your white people? What do you mean with that? And, and it's true. I thought about, when I look at where I am in my career and all that, it hasn't been solely just black folks who have helped me in my career. It's been, it's been a variety of people, including some white people. Right. Uh, some white people who probably philosophically disagree with me but appreciate my talent and whatever. But, that, you know, so I think that's what he's saying is that, if you're going to sit up and tell me that no white person has ever helped you, you're lying. And that's true. I think most of us would be lying. Right. No question about it. Uh, you know, speaking of speaking of blunt answers that he gave you, uh, he had a blunt, blunt answer to your question about the White House and being invited and not being ever invited to the White House by Obama. And that's an interesting thing. Um, here's what he said about that. Well, I'm not, why, why don't you think you were invited to Obama White House? I think that Obama is a great campaigner, a bright individual, that's a great campaigner. And I think he understood how to campaign in a way that he would win. For him to deal with particular black people would have put him into a corner. And possibly he would not have won a second term. So he was wise in how to keep office. And I guess you got to give that to him because you got to be in office to do anything. But being from Chicago and basically doing nothing in Chicago that I know about for black people speaks loudly. Right. Yeah, I told you, I guess what? I haven't been invited to the White House either. (laughs) We got something in common. Yeah, Easter egg hunts and, you know, the balls and playing basketball and golf and all that, you know. Uh, so, but I thought that his, his response was very, very pointed. Oh, yeah. I mean, and he, and he definitely, he took he took a big-time shot at Obama with, you know, in terms of the Chicago thing and, and, not, and not having done anything in his eyes uh, to help Chicago. So um, that was a, that was a pointed, pointed uh, <laughs> comment for sure. For sure. And that's not and that's something that he hadn't really said publicly a right. lot. Right. You know. Uh uh and again, this is locker room talk. I mean, Obama's in the same locker room and you have Oprah in the locker room, Jim and you know, and 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 we have to all deal with it. We're all on this same team. You just can't walk out because then you'll lose the respect to your teammate. Right. If somebody who's well respected brings up a point. You can't just chop them off, you know, because you will you will lose the respect of the locker room. 
you know, right. you, you, you have to grapple. And, you know, we both been in, you know, you've been in, lock, you've been in locker rooms, yep. and sometimes people go to blows, yep. you know. You come yep. to blows, and sometimes you come out better for it. Yeah, no, que- no question about it. And uh, like you said, I mean, sometimes there are players-only meetings. You have these meetings, and you air out your differences. And, you know, maybe I'm, I'm sure Obama would have a response to that. And uh, maybe maybe oh, he'll yeah, come yeah. maybe he'll come on the show and respond to it. You never know. Yeah, maybe she come on Bill Road and sports and respond. Exactly, exactly. Then fi- finally, with Brown, uh, he discussed his philosophy of uh, personal responsibility, and and when talking about Trump and his meeting Trump and being questioned about that, uh, he seemed to be on the defensive a little bit about uh, you know what we need to do as as a people. And not blaming anybody, and whether working with whoever it is, whether it's Trump or whoever. So this was his this was his stance as far as uh, personal responsibility in the black community is concerned. Because there's one thing in life that I believe in: each human being has a responsibility to deliver themselves. By that I mean you must take the first step, and then you can utilize help. I had all the excuses in the world to not comply to the rules that were limited in my my coming of age. But I had some help and I played my part of the game. I did what I was supposed to do. And by sticking with that, I enjoyed success within the society even though I had to deal with racism. But if I had given up based on racism, I wouldn't be sitting here today. So I'm not a victim. Even if it was all black, you still have problems. The principles of success are not going to change. You know, hard work, intelligent work will bring about a miracle. Expectation to be delivered is the worst thing you can be. How can you be delivered by your enemy? Why do you expect your enemy to deliver you? So that's how I feel. Yeah, so I mean, he basically, he used, he used his own experience uh, and his, and his own, what he did as you know as a man himself, and talked about you know what what he thinks it takes for black people to, to succeed in this society, which which he acknowledged uh, is racist. Yeah, uh, and again, it, it was he made a point that this is how I dealt with, it. right? And it, it, it may not be relevant to somebody else, but again, that's his experience, his take, his foundation, and. And this is how I choose and plan uh, to be going about, you know, my business. And uh, I respect, yeah, I respect him for that. Um, again, when I have met with Trump, well, I don't know. It depends on whether he's going to be on our show or not. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's the thing. I mean, if he if he decided to come on on the show, I think I think we would talk to him. I think we would. I mean, when somebody you know, was like, "Oh, Bill, you can't have Trump. You got to be out of your mind." <laughs> Exactly, and that's that's basically that's basically what that basically was uh, Jim Brown's approach. I mean, you, you're out of your mind. That's basically what he was saying. You, you, the president invites you to come talk to him, and you don't go. You're out of your mind. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So, uh, and, and going yeah. yeah, yeah, and you have to. I, you know, we all get that. There's no question. But like I said, a lot of it was about how he reacted when he came out. So, whatever. Well, yeah, I love this guy. That, that was a bit much. Right, right. Coming uh, from Jim Brown. Yeah, you oh, you mentioned that uh that the the moderator was the great Harry Edwards, uh, sports sociologist extraordinaire, and you got a chance to uh, talk to him afterwards also after the panel, and he was def as always was fascinating. Um, and the first the first thing you asked or you talked to him about and that he explained was his mission uh, for the institute. And this is what he said. We want to specifically look at how sport interfaces with issues, structures, processes, dynamics in society to contribute to, if not in point of fact, to create social change. How did what Jackie Robinson did impact social change? Well, you know, he was our Gandhi. 
We didn't know anything about Gandhi. And what we found out subsequently wasn't too flattering in terms of his relationship to black folks in South Africa and what he really thought about black folks. So, uh, but but we, we knew about nonviolent direct action for 10 years before Dr. King ever became head of the Montgomery uh, bus boycott effort. Um, because Jackie Robinson had showed us that nonviolent direct action. He was directly involved in baseball, blacks in the stands, uh, who would come out to baseball games in suits and ties and their Sunday best had been schooled by their pastors and lay uh, a community organized on how to act. When you see somebody throw a black cat on the field, when, when Jack is at bat, when you see somebody slide in the second base with their spikes up, when you hear somebody hurl a whole bunch of niggas and coons and jungle yeah. bunnies from the stands, how do you act? And how do you not? That was our training in nonviolent direct action 10 years before Dr. King ever came on the scene. Jackie Robinson was our Gandhi. We know that that had a phenomenal impact on social change in American society. We know that Joe Lewis and his struggle over uh, uh, with Max Smelling had a tremendous impact in terms of fomenting the double V slogan in the black community during World War II, victory over racism abroad, Victory over racism at home. And when Joe knocked out Max Smelling in their return bout in 1938, hey, two years before, three years before we entered the war, the, the, the mesh was clear. If we can fight and defeat Nazism over there, we can fight and defeat white racism here. The double V thing was in almost every black window in this, uh, in this country, even in the Deep South. And so uh, sport has had a phenomenal impact um, in terms of uh, social change, not to speak of the impact that we've had in terms of changing the games themselves. Mm. I mean, uh, before blacks got back into baseball, uh, baseball was a power game. Everybody was hitting for the fence. You know, blacks brought in base running and so forth because that's the game that they had developed as they went barnstorming with teams that they could just blow out, but they kept the score close and they kept it competitive, they kept people laughing by running between the bases and, and, and stealing bases and rather than hitting a home run, hitting a, a single. So they brought that in. They brought in uh, the, 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 the padded catching mitt. Uh, they brought in night baseball because we didn't have any fields, so we're going to have a double header. Everybody's going to have to put their cars around the field and turn on the lights. And that's the way, that's the, way the, the game was played. We brought in night baseball. We had made changes in, uh, the, uh, uh, in, 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 in sports itself. Jack Johnson brought in a, a, a defensive what, bob and weave, a rope-a-dope kind of thing when everybody else, John L. Sullivan, the, the, you know, knockout punches, throwing, and, you know, they were the, the George Foremans of their day. Uh, we changed that game. We changed basketball. Which it used to be if you dribble a ball between your legs or pass it behind your back, you were you're you're hot dogging. You know, you're now if you can't dribble a ball between your legs, if you you can't pass the ball behind your back, you might not get rid of it. Right. You might get tied up. So they've changed every, we've changed every sport that we've been involved in. But more than that, we've changed uh, society. We've had an impact on changing society. How does that look today? And what is it likely to look like going forward, especially when you put on this added dimension of not just the struggle for access and getting in and changing sports culturally and the way they look and the way that they're played internally, but now protests and what that does to directly impact social change in a broader society. We've gone from the struggle for legitimacy where most of our uh, development and so forth. Most of our contributions were in the national arena with Jack Johnson, who beat uh, a, a Canadian boxer in Australia, uh, Burns, for the heavyweight title to Jesse Owens, the Nazi Olympics, the Olympic Games to Joe Lewis, Max Smelling, and the Nazi thing, because we didn't get the respect we had needed at home. Then with access, we began to get some of the respect, some of the uh, access that we need, but the respect still wasn't there. Play the game, shut up, and go back to the ghetto. Then in the 1960s with Ali, he broke with our fathers and began to say, I'm beautiful, I'm black, I want, I want it all. Then Bill Russell, Jim Brown, you know, that the laughing and grinning and shuffling and the hat in hand and the bowing and the eyes of, I'm going back to the uh, Jim Brown moved into Beverly Hills. Bill Russell moved into Reading, uh, Massachusetts, and when somebody went in and, 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 and dropped a load on his bed, 
and, and scribbled all kind of stuff on the wall. He said, and I'm going to stay right here. You know, uh, he didn't go back to the black community, uh, you know, uh, and, and so forth. And then, uh, uh, you know, the demonstrations at the Olympics, uh, the um, uh, fight that um, uh, Kurt Flood waged. He said, I'm an $80,000 a year slave. And uh, that was about dignity and respect. And now we're into a struggle for power. And these guys are exercising that power. University of Missouri football team said, oh, no, we're siding with the black students. Mm -hmm. The president's got to go. And before three days were gone, not only was the president gone, but the chancellor and the head coach was on his way out the door. <laughs> um, the, the same with um, uh, LeBron James and D-Wade and Carmelo and CP3 tell ESPN, hey, we got something to say. We want to say it on the ESPYs. Uh, uh, Mr. James, uh, how, how much time you're going to need? You know, If we had come up with something like that in the 1960s, if Jim Brown had come up with something like that, they'd have laughed him out of town. But they come up with a... Uh, 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 Mr. Paul, how much time are you going to need? <laughs> what, 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 where, where do you want to be? You want to be at the beginning, the middle, or the end? That's right. Yeah, that's right. We can yeah. squeeze a few minutes in. We, we, we'll shoehorn you in, even if we have to get rid of somebody. You know? So, so that's power. Right. That's power. Right. And now right. that power is, is even greater than ever. But the challenge is even greater than ever. And so now. It comes down to how do we decipher those challenges, how do we manage those uh, responses, how do we project those responses in the age of the Internet, uh, how do we uh, uh, manage what we can neither avoid nor eliminate. And that becomes principally a responsibility of the sports institution itself. And this is what will distinguish this institute from all of the others that are counting bodies, that are doing stuff about you know, developing class on gender, sport, and uh, social issues at the in the university, which is good. We will be specifically looking at how, why, what are the dynamics, what is the projected outcome of these uh, developments at the interface of sport, society, and social change. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is this is his legacy. Right. And I think a lot of people were surprised. Because you have people like Richard Lapchak, and uh, predominantly this, this whole industry of the institutes. I mean, these sports institutes now have cropped up, and you know, at a lot of schools. You know, that's the new cottage industry is studying racism. Ironically, almost all these institutes are run by white people, right. just like the rest of the sports industry. Right. So once again, everybody's talking about racism, and these white people start this stuff. And I think that you know, I mean, that frustrates me. I mean. You know, obviously, Richard Labchek is a is a is a good person, and, and um, all you know, and all that. And I I talk to my views as material, but even at the very beginning, I know there was a couple of years I resisted uh, interviewing him because I wanted black folks to be in a position to be the authorities on black folks. Right. I don't want white people to be the authorities on black people. That's that's the problem. Right. This problem, and I'm just not in that. So I'm not into what was a journalist, you know, right, you know, waving the cause, being the flag bearers for black issues, and we see it a lot. And I just think again, it's when Pharaoh defines your promise land, you're probably not going to reach it, and that's our predicament. So I'm, I'm happy that you know uh, Harry Edwards is. is is going to be um, the spiritual uh, lead of this institute in San Jose, where he taught, and where you know Tommy Smith and Jock Collins came from. So I thought that was, you know, I, I, I I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going. Right, and it looks like it looks like it's going uh, to to big places, and obviously when you're de dealing with it, Harry Edwards, it's it's, uh, it's pretty deep. So yeah, and the way he described it. And just going through, you know, basically, you know, all the all of the changes that were created by by you know black athletes in sports and how it and how it uh, rep even represents itself today and will need to in these times was was pretty fascinating. Um, at the at the end of your conversation with Edwards, there was there was another fascinating point he brought up about 
basically where we are today in terms of society in general, even taking sports out of it, and that is uh, the you know the violence against black people uh, in, in today's day and age compared. You know, everybody talks about uh, you know the past and slavery and and the Reconstruction era afterwards and the lynchings, and he gave he gave a you know a chilling stat really, and he d- he discussed uh, basically lynchings uh, compared to police killings, lynchings during the re- you know after the Reconstruction era uh, compared to police killings uh, in the two thousands. And this is what he had to say about that. You know what we talk about it in the past and everything and how run that and, and I, from 1882 and the beginning of the collapse of Reconstruction, because by, ni- by 1892 it was over. 1882 until the end of 1968 when Dr. King was killed, this country averaged 40 lynchings of black people a year. From 2000 to 2015, this country has averaged 147 police shootings Mm -hmm. of black people every year, most of them unarmed. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. almost four times the number. And and that's why we're in worse shape because as white folks flee, fled the communities, as black folks approached, and numbers of black folks increased and they impacted densely populated traditional communities, more and more were pushed down the police officers to control. Used to be you encountered the police when you left the black community. And the police who were touring around the black community either knew the black community so well, they'd go to Ms. Johnson and say, hey, your boy just stole a bicycle and we want the damn bicycle back. You know, or, or they were black police officers who weren't police officers downtown. They could, but they were dough shakers. <laughs> what we used to call dough shakers in the black community. Dough shakers. Dough shakers. They could shake the dough. Hey, hey they, you can deal with me, or you can deal with the man. But I'm here to get the bike back. You know, they call them dough shakers. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's East St. Louis. You never heard dough shakers? That's East St. Louis, but that's back in the day. We talking 1940s, 40s, 50s here. Yeah, don't shake. Hey man, you better be careful. This old man's a dough shaker. You gotta be kidding me. You don't shake it. So in any event, in any event, uh, but now, <coughs> hey, white cops, there are more cops in the black community than anywhere else. Right. And so the encounters are greater. Right. The the situation is more desperate and the, the, the contentiousness and, and, and the clashes are greater. And so here we now have almost 150 black people a year, men, women, and children being shot to death by police officers. And it's like Los Angeles, 475 complaints. Uh, 47 of them involving um, uh, homicides uh, in 2011, I believe it was, um, and um, not one police officer, only one police officer prosecuted and he was acquitted. I mean, this is this is where we are. Yeah, so that was that was pretty, uh, you know, pretty shocking when you when you think about it. You you always think that, you know, the you know, what a you know <laughs> how would it be if you lived in those times and being scared to be lynched um but actually when you think about it uh it's almost like we're uh, black males maybe black people in general when it comes to police you're just as or more endangered yeah uh and and again it, it just speaks to the needs for those institutes the needs for a black run institute because it's our lives it's our lives it's our survival and we are going to be the only ones that are going to help each other out of this. I mean, I mean, yes, we're going to need the help of everybody, of all well many people. But, you know, we have to be responsible, we, we being black folks, for our own salvation. You know, that's whether your, your mom is black and your dad's white or your dad's Portuguese and you're black. I mean, whatever. Right. You know, you know whatever the configuration of your blackness is, we are responsible because the cops. You know, like when they beat up James Blake, they right. just saw some. But they said, "Oh, wait a minute! You know, let's just beat up the black side of him." Right. So, you know. Right. They, exactly. You know. Exactly. So. No question, the, the the cops aren't aren't discriminating. They're not trying to stop you and discern uh, if you're half this or half that, or well, your mother is this or your father's that. It was it, yeah. Whatever he went to Harvard, don't beat him up. No, you know? no, it's you know, it's about what they what they see and what they perceive you to be, and. uh you're right. So anybody who's perceived to be something other to a cop, you know, we need to worry about this and and get this and get this together. Yeah. 
much about. I mean, I thought it was a very. I'm really, I'm really happy that I went and covered it. I, I had some, some um, going into it. I'm like, okay, what is this going to be? Another, okay, from words, from words to action. But I think that even studying, acknowledging that, okay, we 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 spent a lot of words. Now, how do, what's in the era of Trump? What what? How do we act now? What's the course of action we take? That's whether you voted for Trump or didn't vote for Trump. You know, we, you know, we definitely are in another era. Right. And how do we, how do we move into action during, during this new era? You know, though, yeah, I think a lot of people allow themselves to get a little flabby and fat during the Obama era because you know it was a time of parties and you know going to the White House and you know those people at the end were like, yeah. You know, now, okay, now party's over. <laughs> you know, yeah. so now, you know, what, what are you going to do? Right. And, you know, we'll see where we go from here, and, and particularly uh, as it relates to sports. Uh, obviously, we talked a whole bunch about Kaepernick uh, this past year in 2016. Uh, now it's 2017, and we'll see if uh, athletes – uh, continue to to speak out. They have such a uh, such a, a you know wide and large influence. I think I remember uh, when we had Len Elmore on the show, and he really crystallized that point about you know it's young people uh, who are going to change things in this country, and it always is like that. And there's no group of people who are more influenced uh, than than you know by, who could more influence young people than these athletes who they admire and who they idolize and stuff like that. So uh, they, their willingness and ability to speak out and speak intelligently and uh, about about real issues can have a great, great impact. So we'll see what happens in, the, in an institute uh, like Harry Edwards is, that he's putting together at San Jose State uh, can go a long way also into, into uh, shaping that. And, and, and again, what Jim Brown said too, when you talk about some of the yeah, speaking out, he said, "Speak out." I don't give a damn about people speaking out. It's time to stop speaking out. We got to do stuff. You know, we it's just about action. I just speaking out, but about just doing things. Right. You know, I think that's a very important uh, point. Is okay, speaking out, but let's do things. Right. Action. 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 Right. No question about it. So we'll see, and and we'll you know. Uh, and it's not, and as was ref- referenced in the, dur- you know, during the conference, it's not just athletes who need to do things and 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 create action and get things done. It's also regular people uh, who need who need to do the same thing. We all need to come together uh, if we're gonna if 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 this country is gonna be okay, you know, f- what, during these four years and after. Regardless, we we all need to we all need to do our part. And and, and as you're saying that. You know, athletes are regular people. I think, I think this whole point of athletes saying, you know what, we're really regular people too. <laughs> right. You know, right. uh, you know, we're regular people. If we don't have our uniforms on, we're black folks. We're seen as black folks. We're treated as black folks. You know, we just have visibility. So, um, that was really, I was, I was very happy that uh, I could be there. Happy that you know, you and I were able to to uh, listen to it again and bring it to. Listeners, because I think it's it's very interesting. I mean, it's not interesting. It's very important for us to uh, discuss these ideas, even with black folks who are not necessarily in agreement with. You know, we how do we agree? How do we? What's our new common denominator? And I think if I took anything away, this that what's what's what does it mean to be black in at, at this juncture in time? Uh, and what's our new common denominator? Right, and and you know, on that note, we'd love to hear what what list what you you listeners have have to say about the conference or the discussion in general. Uh, definitely hit us up directly. Uh, email us at uh, at uh, brospod at gmail dot com. Also on Twitter at brospod. Just tell us your thoughts on 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 the conference and on our our discussion 
and on you know everything you've heard or where you think where you think needs things need to go either about athletes speaking out or just you know people athletes and regular people taking action action and uh, you know, when I get back, <laughs> whenever I get through Wyoming, uh, we're, we're going to be talking to uh, Stanley Nelson about his, well, I don't know if we're talking to Stanley Nelson, but I think next week we're going to be talking about his dynamic through film about HBCUs. Right. Uh, because that also speaks to the same issue of our institution, building our institution. So, you know, looking forward to um, connecting Jamal with you next week, probably. We will be in the same studio next time. Yes. Same city. That, yeah, that'll be a change. Yeah. So uh, I said, listen, man, uh, great, great hearing you, great working with you, even from afar. And to all our listeners, thanks for listening. Tell more people about us. I think we have a really great podcast, uh, unique, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, we want to keep growing and growing and growing. So until the next time. See you. Get home safe, man. Well, don't hit these buffaloes out here. Exactly. All right, brother. All right, I'll talk to you soon. All right. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel and I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.